Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10am service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us. And check out our website at mpbc.org.au. We're talking about trust and what is really important and not being distracted by the smaller issues. And then over the past few weeks, just by uh, the the good work of the Holy Spirit, we've had um, various speakers come up and talk to us to reinforce and deepen our faith. But today I wanted to go down a, a bit of a different path and talk about, well, as it says there, why believe? What is it that we believe in and why? And I know that most of you who know me would know that I come from an unbelieving background, that I come from an atheistic background and that as a young man, or a teenager and a young man, I did not believe in God at all. In fact, I'd say, more than not believing, I was quite hostile to God. And I had a range of sort of um, responses, if you like, to Christians, you know. And my default response, as a very good atheist and somebody who was a bit of a scientific rationalist, was mockery. Mockery is a great resort, you know. And I would be sitting there and talking about the idea that, I said, you know, look, this is just an adult version of Santa Claus. You know, this is for people who just want some sort of reassurance when they die. And it was, a, it was an interesting sort of time of life because from my point of view, there was a side of me that really was curious about checking out faith, but I could never quite see what in the world would motivate somebody to believe. I even went to youth groups as a teenage atheist and I would make it my mission to try and, um, if you like, convert <laughs> the friend who brought me to youth group to atheism. I'd be like, you know, look, this is nonsense. Let me show you why this is nonsense. They were pretty patient with me, I have to say. I went along and visited churches and apart from finding it inutterably boring, you know, uh, I, I even visit. I remember actually even going to um, youth camps. I visited along, visited youth camps, um, and apart from offending people because I'd do that, again there was no answers. There was nothing to say. Why should I believe? Jesus, this character they're talking about, seems like a nice bloke. Some of the teachings, yeah, you know, they're not too shabby not that much different to Buddha, good, you know, sort of figure, but, you know, certainly none of this Messiah or God sort of nonsense. Now, part of my response to this, I think, was driven by my own view of life and death. And so, as a teenager, I had an a early brush, if you like, with understanding death. So, my mum died when I was 14, um, and she died of cancer, and she worked her tail off and worked herself into a grave, and in my view, it was a very unjust and untimely death at the ripe old age of 47. Uh, my grandfather died a couple of years later, and I'm like, well, you know, this just all seems like potluck to me, a bit, a bit too random. I'm not going to get into believing. And so, I, I developed a really hostile, if you like, view of Christianity. And um, by the time I got to university, I even had a few scriptures with which I could argue with Christians. And so Jess knows where I'm going here. 
So I would love going up to Christians and misquoting Scripture. So I'd start off with something like Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2 says, life is meaningless. And this well-meaning person trying to reach out to me and invite me to a campus Bible study would say, no, no, life has purpose. Well, the Bible says life is meaningless. You're arguing with your own scriptures. Go figure it out. And they'd go away and sort of sort themselves out a little bit. So it was a real issue for me in terms of being able to deal with it. And I had a range of sort of responses. And I had this wonderful view that said, you know, and I'm going that, that superstitious belief is not necessary in an age of science and technology. That this is something that was, you know, it was good for those pathetic, super, uh, superstitious times when people weren't as smart as we are today. We're so much smarter now, aren't we? And, um, and, and as a result, you know, they didn't have it together. They were just grappling with things and they didn't even have antibiotics. They didn't understand basic hygiene. You know, uh, for most of history, they didn't even understand that the world is not, fl- the earth is not flat. You know, they, they didn't understand anything. And so as a result, they developed this superstitious comfort of a gigantic sky fairy who sits up there and makes people feel better about themselves. Superstitious. I, had the, I, I looked at it and I was like, well, look, Christians are no better than anyone else. Um, I'd say quite straightforward. I, some of this is, I think some of this is familiar to some of you, I can see. Christians are no better than anyone else. Look, Christians are, Christians, Christians are hypocrites. You know, they go around talking about these great moral ideals, but Christians are hypocrites. And this is something that's even sharpened as we go into the 21st century, isn't it? The moral failings, the deep moral failings of people who profess Christian faith or even have Christian faith, they're, they're out there now. I mean, this is every single opportunity it is publicised. Then I was like, well, even beyond that, you know, if your view of God is what it is, you know, and then why all this suffering and injustice seems ridiculous. I mean, good people get crushed into the ground and bad people prosper. What sort of God would be in charge of such a world? What kind of God creates a world that has got... You know, anybody who seems to try to actually do anything but is coming from a background of, I don't know, not having the resources or not having the privilege of birth doesn't get anywhere. But cheaters and liars and con men seem to go on and prosper. Yes, we've seen this. And the Bible is full of talking about this. This is a few hundred years old, that line of logic. Then if you're going to talk about life after death... How can a good God send people to hell for eternity? You know, how can a God who originally said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you know, let the punishment fit the crime, say that simply for the crime of not believing in God, you go to hell for eternity? It seems a bit disproportionate. That was a good argument, by the way. That one, that one, that one got a lot of mileage. Science proves that the world isn't young. So, therefore, Christians are just 
idiots hanging on to this view that thousands of years is actually the lifespan of the universe. Science has proven that it's 14.5 billion years old, the Earth is 5 billion years old. There is no possibility of the Christians having anything right. And then, of course, you get to the heart of the matter a little bit. Who needs these ridiculous rules and restrictions anyway? You know, you Christians, you know, you've got all these little rules about how you do life. It seems just so absurd. You know, life is not about, you know, following rules and regulations. You don't need to worry about those things. And, of course, you know, I want to be able to enjoy myself. I talk about how the Bible contradicts itself. You know, so many contradictions in the Bible. So many contradictions. It was very interesting. You say that line, then somebody got it, the smart thing to, and I'll come back to this, you say, well, what are the contradictions exactly? You know, be more precise, but it's a really good, if you can say it generally, so many contradictions in the Bible. And there are some things that are challenging in the Bible, but are they contradictions? We'll discuss that more. So the Bible contradicts itself. And lastly, but not least, just the story is ridiculous. It is absurd. We, you know, you cannot possibly accept this story. And I know that this is, in fact, a contemporary view. This is a view that is still going on today. If you look around on the wonderful internet, there is this debate still being played out today. And uh, uh, Declan showed me a meme, which I'm going to bring up here in a minute, which, uh, you know, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is a pictorial representation of the arguments that I used to use to mock Christians, and 30 years later, it's coming up through my son. And I thought, this is a bit disturbing, so I thought I'd share it with you. And hopefully it's going to work, of course. There it is. Right, this is the meme, all right? God, when he sacrifices himself to himself to save mankind from himself, and the meme says, oh yeah, it's all coming together. And, and, and this is a wonderful sleight of hand sort of mockery of the faith, isn't it? Because the statement looks and it makes our faith to be absurd, to be foolish. What you're saying is, you know, God, the whole concept is fundamentally flawed. And so this, this is the sort of argument that is going on right now. It was an argument that I mounted all the way up until the age of 23, when I finally came to faith. And it's an argument that I can see still going on through our community right now, and possibly even more so, because when I was a kid, we didn't have these wonderful public means to try and influence our lives. But the funniest thing is, there's nothing new in it. There is absolutely nothing new in mockery. And in 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 18, right at the beginning, Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, 
God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. You know, this scripture is written to say, at the time, when they were going around, at the time when Christianity was not the sort of thing where there is a wonderful 100-year-old building where it is considered to be the sort of dominant historical institution of a community. It wasn't that. At this stage, the faith, the followers of Christ, they were a minority. They were a persecuted minority. They were a strange little sect of the Jewish faith as far as the Gentiles were concerned. And there were these bunch of people running around talking about this story of a guy who just a few years earlier had come, done a few miracles, preached a few lessons, then he died, and three days later he rose from the dead. Now, if there's one thing that our society and ancient societies have in common with each other, is that we all know that death is final. Isn't that right? You know, if you have a look right now, our society is as focused on death evasion as any society of the past, possibly even more. People, we, we live in denial of ageing. Why are we so afraid of ageing? Well, because once you start getting older, you're a step closer to death. And we live in this denial that anything, that, that, that we're going to die. We don't want to face up to this reality that every single human being who's ever lived has also, possibly apart from the exception of Enoch, but that's a Bible story and we're talking about the, the, the grounds of where we are, has died. And that's the reality of it. That is the simple reality. So it's easy to mock this and it was very easy at the time for everybody to mock it. You know, what we do is we consider death now to be a tragic exception rather than a usual reality. And so that's why we get this whole thing of like, well, you know, <laughs> people are always trying to pretend, you know, I've got the youthfulness and vigour of a 20-year-old and I'm 88, you know. Um, it, you know, we've got, this, we've got this idea that we've got to try and somehow or other prove ourselves to, to not have one foot in the grave. Now, of course, when I was young, I didn't believe any of that. And somehow, as I mentioned before, when I was 23, I came to a view that said that all of that mockery and all of those reasons that I had listed were actually invalid and that I needed not only to reject what I'd held before as being true, that life was just this temporary thing that was an accident of of uh, the genetic soup or the cosmic soup, but I actually realised that I needed to come to a faith in God, and not only any God, but the God of the Bible and a faith in Jesus, His Son. And how did that happen? So I'm going to try, in the next 20 or so minutes, to go through why that change happened for me. And I'm hoping that in sharing this with you, that it can equip you. If you don't have faith, maybe it'll strengthen your faith. If you, if you do have faith, it might help you to persuade other people. But the key is that what I'm sharing here is how the Lord reached out 
and changed my heart. And it all began with um, actually a bloke reaching out to me and inviting me to a Bible study on the street. That was pretty much it. A public evangelism, somebody inviting me to a Bible study. It wasn't a person I knew. And in fact, I already had mocked all of the people I knew who were Christians and they'd pretty much learned not to talk to me about that. You know, they'd learned. So God sent into my life some bloke who I didn't know who invited me to come along and study the Bible. And I know I've mentioned it before that what he did was quite different because he invited me to the Bible study. I said to him, you don't want me at your Bible study. I think you are ridiculous. Your faith is ridiculous and I will destroy your faith. To which he said, you're very opinionated about the Bible. Have you ever read it? Not read it, the meme generator, Declan. Read it, as in read the Bible. And I was like, well, no, I haven't. And he went, well, who's the idiot? You've got an opinion about something you haven't even read. Now, I, I know that's not recommended, of a relationship evangelism 101 in the modern age, but you know something? God works in different ways with different people. And some people need somebody to walk alongside them and give them a hug, and other people need somebody to come along and give them a short uppercut to the chin. And I was the latter, all right? Subtlety doesn't work on me. It does not work. And um, my wife knows that, right? Subtlety does not work. Trying to give me a hint about something is a really bad idea. And so God didn't give me a hint. He gave me a person who called me an idiot. And then we started to look at the Bible. And I, I actually have to say, I thought, I realised after I'd lost an argument on the street, which was very disappointing... Um, I realised that I was in for a battle, so I prepared myself. I read Bertrand Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian. And I have to say, when I was reading it to try and prove a point, it didn't sound as good as when I'd just read it casually and justified myself. And I started preparing. Now, I did high school debating as well, before this, years before. As actually, my daughter's been recently faced up with debating. And in debating, you learn how to take the other person's point of view, right? You've got to learn how to argue a point learn how to persuade people. You've got to be able to argue everything from every dimension. And I went through this and I prepared. But unfortunately, no matter how much prepared, nothing prepared me for what he showed me from the Bible. And one of the things that they showed me was that the Bible actually matches the reality of my life. <laughs> that the Bible could describe my life in four verses better than I could describe my own life. And I had found myself in a, a very interesting living situation. Um, so I was living in a share accommodation, um, and the share accommodation, you know, it's just me and my mate, Tobias. And um, it was an interesting sort of setup. You know, I'd, I'd gone out with this girl for a little while. I think at this stage I'd just broken up with her. She'd cheated on me. Um, and my best friend was engaged to another woman, all right? And she came up and visited our house. She came up from Canberra to Sydney to visit. And she hooked up with my flatmate. My flatmate. My best friend's fiancé is sleeping with my flatmate. Now, this caused a lot of tension, shall we say, in my mind. Now, as an atheist, why should it bother me at all? 
And that was part of my thoughts. Well, you know, look, hey, they're adults, they can do what they want, get on with it. But as a human being, I was like, this is bad. Do I tell him? Do I t- what do I do? How do I do this? And this was what I was wrestling with. And in that context came this verse. Jesus talking. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart. That translation I read at the time said out of a man's heart, but they've sort of regendered the language these days. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now the version I was reading at the time said makes a, a, a come from within a man and makes a man unclean. There was a description it used. It's actually, I felt it was bit more relatable, makes a man unclean. And that's what defile themselves means, makes you feel unclean. And it was the perfect description for what was going on at the time. Now, this didn't make me believe God, by the way. This just cut through a little bit. And I I was like, you know what? This is my life. Yes, these things, every single one of those things other than murder was in my life. It was either in my life, I could see it in my friends. It was in my life, I could see it in me. And every single one of them, the perfect description was, I just felt dirty. And I couldn't shake that feeling. I couldn't shake that sense of like discomfort with my own lack of integrity. Because we know ourselves better than anyone else, right? We know the truth of what we think. We know when we have lied. We know when we have cheated. We know when we have looked at someone and despised them. We know when we're not treating someone the way that we want to be treated. We know when we're being deceitful and we're trying to say, well, I didn't lie. And that was the thing that really got me in this verse. It doesn't, it, it's not talking about just lying, it's talking about deceit. The idea that you don't have to actually lie to be unclean. The idea that just deceiving people, not being open and transparent, And this verse cut through into my life. And it said, Rodney, Jesus, in four verses, has described you well. And at that point, I was beginning to get a little bit, you know, like, this is not so good. I need to argue against this a little bit more. And I went on and I said, yeah, look, look, there's some points in this. But, But look at this. All you Christians and all the good people the good people cop it in the neck. There is, if there was a God, surely the God would make sure that good people get the good rewards, right? That's what makes sense. That's justice. That's the way it should work. And they said, well, not so much. And this really blew me away. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, a verse most of us are familiar with in part, but I want to go back a little bit. And it says here, in fact, everyone, this is, this is the Bible's selling pitch to you, okay? Just think of this as the sales pitch of the Bible to an atheist. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What a great promise, eh? Thank you. 
while evildoers and imposters go from bad to worse. Well, that actually matches what I'm talking about here. Deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have, le- what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this person stayed in the Bible with me said, look, the Bible actually says that this is what's going to happen. This sort of thing. And the reason this happens is because God is letting people make their own choices. We are not robots. God is not intervening and preventing people from making bad decisions. And the way the world is, is a reflection of all of our bad choices and the collective bad choices that we make and the impact that we have on each other. And the Bible even says that the mere effort of going to try and follow God will attract even more attention and lead you to more hardship. And as I said, that's a great sales pitch right there. You know something? And I thought, this makes a lot of sense. I'm beginning to see... Oops. There you go. I've just knocked it out of... um, We'll get it back in. I began to see that the Bible was matching reality. But even more than that, this person then said, what you've got to get into are the Scriptures. The Scriptures are either true or they're not true. The Bible is either real or it's not real. If what the Bible says is true, it's the most important thing in the world. If it's not true, then you've just wasted a few hours of your life, which was meaningless anyway, checking out something that was meaningless. So really, you've got nothing to lose. And I went, you know, it's hard to argue with logic like that. (laughs) So then we went on to, you know, I'm paraphrasing... Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict with evidence that commands attention, (laughs) you know, the resurrection. And for me, this really began to hit home because I had never realised that the whole of the Christian faith, all of it, every aspect of it comes down to one historic moment. And it does. The whole of our faith comes down to one historic moment. All of the other arguments. You remember the other day we talked about trust and what's important. Everything else pales into insignificance compared to this. And this is, this is what, my, not my opinion, not the atheist opinion, this is actually what the Bible says. The Bible says there is one moment that matters. In 1 Corinthians 15, Now, brothers and sisters, what I want to, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep." Going on a little bit, Paul then goes and says in verse 13 and 14, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, 
your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. This is actually really interesting. And I went, whoa, you're bringing it down to one thing? I can argue with one thing? And I, you know, but then there come the issue. You go back a little bit there. What was happening here? Paul was defending his preaching. He'd preached to church, the church in Corinth, and in Acts chapter 17, it talks about how Paul went off to Corinth after he'd been in Athens. And, he, and Paul had preached to the church in Corinth, he'd taught them about Jesus, he'd gone on, done a few other things, and then he hears, and he gets information that says that the church has now got people coming along and saying, look, this resurrection stuff, it's ridiculous. Nobody raises from the dead. Don't worry about the resurrection. The resurrection is not real. And Paul was make, writing this to say, hey, on, guys, it is real. And it's not just real because I say so. So you think about this. Right now in this room, I don't know, there's probably maybe 100 or so people. I was going to say 100-odd people, but that would probably be insulting. Um, there's 100 or so people. Think about what it just says here. Paul goes through and he says, this is who Jesus appeared to. And one of those is 500 people at the same time. Five times this group here. Now, as a good person trying to tear Paul down, and Paul had plenty of enemies, we know that, the scriptures make that perfectly clear, that Paul was on many sides, besieged by enemies. What would I have done if I was the enemy of Paul? I would have immediately said, okay, you've named a few, name a few more, I'm going to go and talk to them. I want to check this story out. I'm going to prove that you are lying because this resurrection stuff is nonsense. You're just trying to get followers for yourself, whatever it may be. Well, I don't know what's in it for you really because you're kind of getting persecuted, but that doesn't matter. I'm going to prove you wrong. And if anybody had been able to prove that Paul was lying, if any of the people who were receiving and doubting this message had been able to prove that Paul had lied in any way, shape or form, he would have been utterly discredited and this writing, this letter today, would be widely delivered as evidence of a first century fraud. You can't make a claim like that while the people are still living, note, and get away with it. It's too big a claim. You can get away with it if you sit there and have a conspiracy of three people and one, two and three get together and we say, hey, look, we're going to make out. Let's steal the body and pretend that Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, you can get away with that. But once you start going around and making grandiose claims of 500 people, more than the people in this room, how the heck do you get away with that? Those people have to be amazingly loyal to you to follow your lie especially when at the time there was no reward for following the lie. And this is where historic evidence gets really interesting. You see, Christianity didn't become a dominant world religion until the 4th century. It took 
It took over 300 years before Christianity became mainstream. And at the time that Paul was writing these letters and facing these problems, it was a persecuted minority, a persecuted sect. So why would you tell a lie when your only reward was going to be punishment, confiscation of your assets and potentially death? I found that really difficult to argue with. You see, and this is the fact of the resurrection. You see, Jesus has given us not only something to have faith in and believe sight unseen, he's given us powerful evidence of the truth of the resurrection. And I have to admit, I found it very difficult because when that was put to me, how could this lie have survived? Why would people lie for Paul? And I knew people's behaviour. People are self-interested. They're not going to do this just, you know, if there was a reward, if there was money in it, if there was something that people could get out of it, yes, they could conceivably lie, although I'd still find it difficult to believe that 500 would follow him. And you see, then Paul doubles down on it and says, and if it's not true, the whole faith is useless. (laughs) You know, the whole of faith is useless. Now, my response to this actually wasn't to immediately believe. My response was to say, I think I'm, I'm ready to stop talking about this. I'd like to go back to my regular life. I'm sick of going to church and talking to you. That was my first response. I didn't take this on board. I found it extremely uncomfortable and I did not want to be there. So, I took up my standard sport, which was skydiving. Um, I had a bit of an ad- adrenaline junkie sort of approach to life. And I went back to skydiving and I was like, I'm going to go skydiving this weekend. I've been to church for three months solid. It's ridiculous that I've gone this long. You guys are all nutters and I don't care what it says about the resurrection. And there was only one problem. When I went up in that aircraft, and the most dangerous part of skydiving is not jumping out of the aeroplane, it's getting in the aeroplane. All right, those aeroplanes they use for skydiving, they're dodgy. They are really dodgy. You know, single prop-powered aircraft that sound like they've got a backfire in the carburetor when you start it up. It is not good. That first 2,000 feet going up is terrifying. And as it was going up, I just could not get it out of my head. What if this stuff is true? What if... And, and I couldn't find a way. And I was like, I know it's not true. God isn't there. This isn't true. But it had become dogmatic position for me. I could no longer argue with any integrity that I didn't really have any basis for believing. And that was when I prayed for the first time in any form of sincerity, sincere way. And that was, I don't believe you're there, God, but if you are, don't let me die. That was it. I was under no illusions about where my life stood before God. I didn't think I was a good person because I knew that I'd been arguing against God, I'd been arguing against everything about it. I was under no illusions. But after I landed and I didn't die in the skydiving, I was like, why would I pray if I don't believe? It wasn't like I had this moment of wonderful feeling and the peace of God came over me. Would have been great, would have been lovely. I didn't have that sort of emotional experience. It was a moment where pushed into a corner, I prayed and then afterwards I realised what I was done and I was horrified with myself, you know. And so I went back to church that Wednesday night and uh, they were probably praying for me, but anyway. Um, and I said, okay, guys, I want to get baptised. 
and you should, they, they fell over. Um, they were a bit shocked, to say the least. Like, it was like, hang on, just last Thursday you said you didn't want anything to do with us, now this Wednesday you want to get baptised, what's happened in between? And you see, this is the sort of thing that we need to make sure that we are equipped to talk about. We need to talk about the faith and the resurrection. Today is a day we're going to take communion. We've got to be prepared to talk about it and make sure we understand that arguing with people on the street about different aspects of morality is not going to cut it, when their basic worldview is that God is not there. We've got to start talking about the relationship with God. Is this true or not true? You know, one of the things that I find is really cute about the way that the world has gone is we've now gotten to the position that all faiths are equal, even if they blatantly contradict each other. Well, hang on a second, that's not logically possible, is it? Unless you're saying all faiths are equal because they belong in the Sky Fairy category and, uh, and everybody can just put them in that little bucket of don't really believe it, it's not really true. And you see, this is what we need to be equipped to deal with. And that's, that's I guess, the, the, the essence of my message today. The final point that I've got on this, though, is that experience is the best teacher. What was it that made me sort of like go along with it? I mentioned I'd been going for three months. There was this interesting passage, and I think this passage is one that's much overlooked, you know. Um, apart from the fact that the Nazis misquoted this passage, it's really interesting to see how evil can even misuse a good passage, right? Whereas it works, you'll set you free. You know, um, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The way this was put to me was, you don't believe, but Jesus is giving you an opportunity. And the opportunity is to test out his teachings. Try out his teachings. Start holding to his teachings and then the Bible says you will know the truth. Give it a go, test it out, and find out. And that was the challenge that was put to me. That was why I tried for those three months. And you know what? Over that entire time, it didn't occur to me that what God was doing was working on my heart through the Bible studies, through the efforts, through even just going to church, because part of the challenge I was given in relation to that was just going to church. And so I'd urge all of us, if you need this challenge... Maybe reacquaint yourself with it. Take the challenge. Are you prepared to test it out? Or if you know somebody who dismisses the faith, give them the challenge. You see, again, what's the downside for a person who doesn't believe? There is no downside. Because if you don't believe and you think that you're just going to go back to dust and that's it, it doesn't really matter, does it? You haven't wasted anything. You haven't lost anything. And it was my experience of living by the teachings of the Bible and beginning to do so that began to give me an insight into all sorts of things. I could see people's relationships that were based on sincerity and equality. When I could see people liking each other, not based on what they got from the other person, but just because they wanted to give to each other and show love to each other. That made an enormous difference. Now, I didn't admit it. I wasn't that sort of guy. 
Uh, but I could see it and I could re really recognize that that love for one another stuff is actually useful. And that's what we need to be prepared to show and challenge ourselves and other people with. Because that's Jesus' greatest command, isn't it? Love one another as I have loved you. To be prepared to lay down our lives for one another. That stuff is really compelling when we follow it. And the funniest thing is, for an atheist, when you look at it and you start to look at it and go, I want to follow this, God opens up doors. He opens up doors into your heart. And that was what I found. Now, the other day when I preached, um, I have to say, the, uh, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, oh, you know, look, you forgot to put in this verse, so I've done this just for them. Uh, <laughs> and um, the bottom line is here, is that it's actually the message of Christ that is the power of the Lord. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. This is the power of the gospel. This is what transforms atheistic hearts into reality. It's the experience through the word, through seeing it applied in other people's lives, through being able to actually declare the message that's not just verbal, that's not set up around rules and regulations, but is set up on the message about Christ that will change atheistic hearts. And so the challenge for us is to make sure we're applying that and to share it. Now, in a few moments, we're going to take communion. And obviously, having just talked a lot about the resurrection as a core issue of faith, it's a good time to reflect on the communion. But before we do that, I want to go back to that little meme I threw up. You're going, go back to a meme for... Ugh. Right, there it is. What is the flaw in the meme? What is the flaw in the meme? How do you argue against this? this we're about to take communion and acknowledge that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And there's this mockery that's there in the world that says that this moment that you do this, this moment that we acknowledge the love of the Lord is an object of mockery. And what is the flaw in the logic? And the, lo the logic is not in the first line, the flaw. It's not in the second line. It's in the third line. You see, Jesus didn't sacrifice himself to save himself or to save us from him. He sacrificed himself to save us from ourselves, from us. It's our sin. You see, when we sin, we separate ourselves from God. When we sin, the Bible teaches we put a barrier between ourselves and God. And God, who is the author of life, the source of all life, the one who sustains all life. And you put a barrier up between ourselves and the source of life, and what do we get? Death. That is the message. You see, and that is again the reality. We know that that's what happens. And so when Jesus died to save us and rose from the dead to break the law of sin and death, 
He wasn't reaching out to us to say, oh, I'm reaching out to save you from my own punishment. He was reaching out to say, I'm reaching out to save you from the consequences of your choices. And the consequence of your choice to reject God, to reject life, is death. And that is the thing that he was saving us from. And so if we ever come across this sort of mockery, it's always helpful to understand that as we take communion right now, this is the end of mockery. Because we're saying that we're not celebrating some arcane ritual that just follows some sort of strange teaching where the sky god said, I'm displeased with you, you must follow me. What we're doing is we're acknowledging a critical moment in history with evidence, with evidence of hundreds of eyewitnesses that tells us that the gospel is true. And that is what we are acknowledging right now. So as we take the bread and the wine, and I'd invite the people to come forward as we pray, I'd invite us to reflect on this moment of truth, that it's not a, a, a random thing we do, it's not a tradition, it's not, a, uh, it's not something that, that is a nice to have. This, right now, is the core of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you reach out to us. Lord, we are so frequently lost you know, you describe us as being like sheep without a shepherd. We're people who are stuck in quicksand and don't know how to get out. And yet, Lord, you reach out to us. You have reached out to us. You have shown us your love. And you have shown us that this cycle of life and death can, in fact, be broken. And you've shown it through your example in coming to earth, living with us, dying for us and raising from the dead. Lord, as we take the bread and the juice right now, help us to focus our minds on this moment in reality and help us to be renewed in our hearts so that we can take the good news to a world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.